pleasure for me to meet you and your people here today in your homeland at this place of falling water, where water has fallen idly for ages, the gift of our great creator. It has been decided that my people make this great development of your property, make use of this idle water for you, and all who may be able to use its power. If it shall fall upon me to carry on this work, I ask that you send your young man to help me, and that you come and set up your teepee, and visit us when you can, and watch the great work grow. I want to thank you and your people for all your kindness, and I hope the work will be a success and bring to your people many comforts as long as water falls. Kustara and the Kutnes people shakes hands with Mr. with our friend Frank M. Kerr. And here we are, adapting him as one of our tribes and people here for that we shall know him as Al Kashmukwai. He's like. I thank you. I'm John Hooks. And I'm Matt Newman. And this is Land Grab. Welcome back to Land Grab. In the last episode, we looked at how Standard Oil's takeover of the Anaconda Copper Company and the end of the homestead boom in 1919 converged to send Montana into its own mini-depression in the 1920s. This era in American history is dominated by behemoth corporate monopolies, growing to unimaginable scales of size and control. In this economy, the production centers, the hinterlands where the resources were extracted and refined, suffered poverty and environmental devastation, while all of the wealth generated flowed upward and outward into urban centers and offshore accounts. It's very telling that this decade that is so devastating in Montana is characterized by the extravagance of the Roaring Twenties in the elite parts of America. Montana was broke 
because all of our money was going to fund those Gatsby-style parties in New York, L.A., and San Francisco. Last chapter looked at the rise of Amalgamated and the devastating consequences their brutally profitable rule of the state had for Montana's working farmers and miners. But this chapter, we're going to focus specifically on how the company moved in on the Flathead Reservation. In our two chapters on the allotment of the reservation, we showed how the regional corporate powers of Western Montana, led by the Missoula Mercantile Company, moved in to handicap and take over the burgeoning ranching and farming industry that the tribes had built over decades. And in this chapter, we're going to see that process repeat in this new economy. As, once again, an opportunity for the tribes to build prosperity for themselves is cruelly and intentionally taken away by collaboration between the government and big business. This time, the Amalgamated Copper Company and their even bigger partner, General Electric. This is the story of the construction of Kerr Dam. And it begins with the story of the construction of the Flathead Irrigation Project. Chapter 9, Under Ditch. The Flathead Irrigation Project got started when Joseph Dixon secured a new amendment on his original Flathead Bill after moving up to the Senate in 1908. This amendment called for the construction of an irrigation system throughout the reservation and appropriated funds with an initial payment scheme that would put 50% of the funds raised from reservation land sales toward constructing the ditches. Since irrigation would ostensibly help the tribes in their conversion to agriculture, it was deemed to be in their best interest and thus paid for out of their own funds. And when initial surveys of the reservation claimed that the reservation could be quickly and cheaply irrigated, the amendment was further amended to direct 100% of the land sale proceeds toward the project until it was finished. The government also amended the bill to reserve lands for power plant sites and construct a tunnel at the Flathead River Falls. The original plan for the site was to be a small power plant that could power the irrigation system once it was complete. And before the dam was built, and somehow the people heard that there was going to be people who wanted to lease this place to build a dam. And, uh, and something told my people not to let it go because it's very important to the Kootenays. Well, some of them didn't like it because that was their uh, uh, what their spirits is at. But this site was a sacred place to the Kootenay as the tribal elders Alec Lefthand and Tony Mathias explain in that tape from Place of the Falling Waters However, once again, Congress and Joe Dixon decided for themselves 
that this was in the best interest of the tribes. The land was confiscated and construction began. The tunnel was completed in 1911, building up a debt of $100,000 along the way. After the reservation was opened in 1910, indigenous farmers were pushed off to much of the worst growing land on the edges of the border, while white settlers moved into the prime growing region of the valley, quickly outgrowing the indigenous population and taking up as much as 90% of irrigable land. This initial payment scheme that put all money from tribal land sales toward irrigation construction also deprived the tribes of their biggest source of cash just as they were being forced into a totally cash-reliant economy. And it funded a system that basically only served whites. In 1914, an investigator for the Indian Rights Association named S.M. Brosius published a report called Irrigation Problems in Montana that outlined the inequalities in the existing payment scheme, warning that the tribes on the Flathead Reservation were doomed under existing laws to suffer gigantic wrongs through legislation enacted within the past 10 years which provides for the construction of irrigation projects on their tribal lands. Brosius reported that since 1909, $300,000 of tribal funds had been used to build an irrigation system that was still not even half complete. Controversy blew up after the report was released, and in May 1916, Congress amended the act again this time providing for the reimbursement of tribal funds that had been used up till that point and hatching a new payment scheme for the project. However, tribal funds weren't fully paid back until 1948, and the new payment scheme was arguably worse than the first one. This new scheme dictated that the federal government would front the costs of finishing construction on the irrigation project and then be reimbursed by individual landowners, who would pay the government back out of the profits from their irrigated farms. But the law required that the federal government secure repayment contracts for their reimbursable funds, so construction halted until Montana could create irrigation districts or state-ran bodies that could enter into repayment contracts with the federal government. While the irrigation districts assisted with construction and operation of the irrigation project through what was called the Joint Board of Control, their main function, especially according to their critics, was that of a collection agency, charging individual landowners for the costs of the irrigation project. And even though the irrigation districts were to be run by citizens, since 90% of the citizens who used the system were now white settlers, the creation of the districts essentially represented a handing over of control to white irrigators, despite the fact that the system was ostensibly being built for the tribe's benefit, and all of the money spent so far had been tribal money. 
You can argue about whether or not this was all intentional, but it doesn't really matter because what is inarguable is the effect, which is that the government stole tribal funds to build an irrigation system that was controlled and 90% used by white settlers. But this plan was immediately flooded with problems. The irrigation project, which government surveyors had said could be done cheaply and quickly, turned out to be neither cheap nor quick. Operation and maintenance costs rose year after year, just as the drought was taking hold and decimating crops and livestock. Landowners on 80 to 320 acre allotments and homesteads couldn't raise enough of a yield in the drought to make any profit, let alone enough to pay for irrigation. Debt continued to mount, and the irrigation districts got less and less selective with their enforcement of the repayment contracts, charging many people for water whether or not they used it or even had access, and whether or not it arrived in time to save the year's crops. Many indigenous and white farmers lost their lands to foreclosure because of this scheme. In 1926, Commissioner of Indian Affairs Frank Knox delivered a startling update to Congress on the Flathead Irrigation Boondoggle. Of the 150,000 acres they originally intended to irrigate, only 112,000 were under ditch, and only 30,000 were actually getting water. Of those 30,000 acres getting water, only 1,882 acres were cultivated by tribal members. The rest of those lands were owned or leased by whites. While the project had only successfully irrigated a fraction of its intended reach, it had built up more than $5 million worth of debt for the federal government as landowners failed to meet the repayment contracts. The government had spent $175 per acre to irrigate land that generated less than $20 per acre of yearly crop revenue. In the original design of the irrigation project, the people who benefited from the project were supposed to pay for the debt of constructing the ditches to their land. In 1926 or 28, um, there was a $5 million debt owing on the irrigation project. Lewis Crampton's interior committee was reevaluating whether or not they wanted to invest any additional funds into the project. Throughout the decade, annual crop yields got lower each year, while debt continued to amass and land values plummeted further. The present cost, Knox concluded his address by saying, is an impossible one. Critics laid into the irrigation districts and the Bureau of Indian Affairs for getting into such a disaster, while the Bureau went in desperate search of a way to save face and pay off the debt, running straight into the arms of one of the largest corporate monopolies in the world. The funding for the completion of the irrigation project was Kerr Dam. Um, Rocky Mountain Power or Montana Power came in and they said that that if the local people would relinquish uh, the dam site to them, that they would build a, a bigger dam, give the local residents a low-cost block of power, the residents could retail the electricity on the reservation, make a profit, and use that to pay back the federal government the $5 million debt. That voice there is Teresa Wall McDonald, who we've heard from in previous episodes, speaking in an interview for Place of the Falling Waters. We're going to take a break here, but when we come back, we'll introduce some new friends who are actually just some old friends, the Montana Power Company. <laughs> 
Hey there, Land Grab listener. John here. I just wanted to hop on and remind you all that Land Grab is supported by listener donations. Our friends at the Montana Mint help us publish and publicize the show, but the production is really just Matt and I. We got a really great response after we put out our first episode, and we're really grateful to everybody that chipped in and helped us realize this first season. We want to keep making Land Grab as long as there's an audience and a market for it. To make the show at the level of quality that we think it deserves is a very labor-intensive and time-consuming process. And listener support allows us to put in the time and effort that is required. So if you want to help us grow Land Grab and make more of the show, the most helpful thing would be to chuck in a buck or two which you can do at landgrabpodcast.com slash donate. Again, that is landgrabpodcast.com, all one word, slash donate. If contributing to the show isn't an option for you, there are still plenty of ways that you can help us out by spreading the word about the show. Tell your friends, recommend it to every tourist you run into, and you can share our stuff on social media. We're at LandGrabPod on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And you can rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. That sort of stuff really helps draw more eyes and ears to the show. It's been so nice to see the kind of response that the show has been getting. And again, we really want to thank everybody who has helped us so far. But for now, let's get back to the show. Welcome back. In the first part of this chapter, we talked about how the government had finished construction of the Newell Tunnel Prospective Power Site in 1911, with the original purpose of eventually building a power station that could provide pumping to assist the operation of the floundering irrigation project. But the project essentially ground to a halt for almost a decade after more than $100,000 had been spent building the tunnel. In 1912, John D. Ryan, head of the Amalgamated Copper Company, merged the company's power and light holdings across the state into the Montana Power Company. This included the Missoula Power and Light Company, which was started by Andrew Hammond. While Ryan was the president of both companies, and amalgamated as a trust held a stake in the power venture, the Montana Power Company was technically a subsidiary of a huge holding company called the American Power and Light Company, which itself was a subsidiary of the unfathomably large multinational holding company called the Electric Bond and Share Company, or EBOSCO. The march is on. The steady march of a peacetime army to new frontiers of electrical progress, to new victories in General Electric's never-ending quest for better ways of living, creating new comforts and conveniences undreamed of a generation ago. Ibosco was the entity through which General Electric, owned by J.P. Morgan, controlled possibly the world's largest power monopoly. Men, money, machines, Knowledge, vision, research, carefully, painstakingly perfecting, 
so that the things which make for better living may be more plentiful and less expensive. It is thrilling indeed to know that this is General Electric's contribution to the world of today and the better world of tomorrow, to man's mastery of his destiny. Ebosco had four main holding companies, the American Power and Light Company, the American Gas and Electric Company, the Electric Power and Light Corporation, and the National Power and Light Company. And these holding companies collected regional subsidiaries, either through hostile takeover or by inviting oligarchical friends like John D. Ryan to form statewide conglomerates that were then acquired by Ebosco. Altogether, the power monopoly controlled electric utility services in 31 states and maintained fixed, artificially inflated prices everywhere it held control. In 1931, a journalist named Robert Gesner reported that Ebosco was raking in more than $50 million a year in gross income and had total assets of a billion dollars. Now, in one lifespan, the future came rushing in like an avalanche. Here was power, unbelievably versatile power. Titanically muscle power, leaping to any task. Incredibly delicate power, responding with instant precision to the tiniest signal. Hot power melting and fusing metals or gently warming a sleeping child. Magic power soaring through space to link man with man. Brilliant power lighting the way to a better world. Above all, here was power for freedom, power to expand existing freedoms, power to create new freedoms. In 1920, Congress passed the Federal Water Power Act. This act stated, among other things, that all proceeds from power developed on any Indian reservation should be placed to the credit of the Indians of such reservation. The act also established the Federal Power Commission, a three-person committee of the Secretaries of War, Agriculture, and Interior, who would arbitrate water power disputes and administer licenses to interested parties that wanted to develop power plants on federal land, including reservations. In 1925, the Montana Power Company arranged a deal with its sister corporation, Amalgamated, to provide 25,000 kilowatt hours of power to the Anaconda smelter, despite the fact that they had no power developments able to meet that demand. Another mere image to something that happened earlier when Andrew Hammond struck a deal to build the railroad without having a lumber operation to fulfill the contract. The deal would see the Montana Power Company sell amalgamated power at about a tenth the cost it sold to other customers while all other industrial and domestic consumers in Montana were squeezed out of about $2.1 million a year in overpriced power that made up the cost of that sweetheart deal. 
With the power company in need of a power site, and the Bureau of Indian Affairs in need of a way out of their massive irrigation hole, big business and big government locked arms and turned their gaze squarely at the proposed power site on the Flathead River Falls. And I'm going to say here, it's important to remember that everything that happened next was planned, requested, and initiated by the Bureau of Indian Affairs, who was supposed to be guarding the tribe's best interest above all else. Throughout 1926, head of the House Interior Committee, Michigan's Louis C. Crampton, snuck two secretive amendment riders into the House Appropriations Bills that allowed the government to completely confiscate lands for the power site, including 7,000 acres that had already been allotted to tribal members. Crampton had worked as a special attorney in the Interior Department before running for office, writing an early history of Yellowstone National Park while he was there. And he was very closely involved with the department while in Congress. He's still fondly remembered by some for helping found Glacier Park, and is even one of the people credited with coming up with a name for the Going to the Sun Road. In Robert Gesner's 1931 book, Massacre, A Survey of Today's American Indian, which we have cited already, he goes over multiple issues around the country of the Bureau of Indian Affairs and corporations working with Congress to exploit resources on tribal lands. Gesner actually writes in the book that Crampton always appears on the scene like Mephistopheles at the most congruous moments for rendering evil. In February 1927, officials from the Montana Power Company Office of Indian Affairs, Interior Department, the Federal Power Commission, and even the Flathead Water Users Association, a local group of organized white landowners, met in secret to negotiate a contract with the power company to develop the Flathead power site. Not invited to the meeting were any tribal members, and explicitly stopped from attending was the tribe's appointed attorney, a man named Albert Grorud. The BIA refused to acknowledge Grorud as the tribe's counsel and even refused to clear the tribal funds they controlled to pay for his work. The initial agreement reached at this secret meeting stipulated that the Montana Power Company would pay a rental fee of $1 per horsepower per year, part of which would go to repaying the cost of the Newell Tunnel. Another part of the payment was to be made in the form of power at cost for the irrigation district, which, again, was only 10 to 15% indigenous use. And the remainder of the rental fee would be split up into cash payments to white and indigenous residents. The agreement would also see the Montana Power Company sell the government power at wholesale rates, which the government would then sell to residents around the state at a profit, and use the proceeds to pay off the debt from the irrigation boondoggle. In order to allow the government to issue the permit to the Montana Power Company, Lewis Crampton snuck jokers, or secretive appropriation riders, into budget legislation called the Second Urgent Deficiency Bill. The amendments moved the prerogative for granting power site permits on federal land under the sole authority of the Interior Secretary, instead of the Federal Power Commission, and it laid the groundwork for the government to accept 
the initial parameters of the secret contract. Endorsed by the Interior Secretary, the Head of Budget Management, and President Calvin Coolidge himself, the bill flew through the House uncontested. But the confiscatory nature of the deal and the pittance offered to tribal owners of the site drew the ire and the support of John Collier and the American Indian Defense Association, who exposed the secret deal to the public and the Senate, which killed the bill and repealed the 1926 riders, restoring tribal ownership of the site. In the beginning, when Montana Power Company was pursuing the license, nobody protected the tribe's interests adequately. It was a tribal resource, it was tribal property, those were tribal waters that were reserved for the benefit of the tribe in the beginning of the reservation. The Bureau of Indian Affairs and congressional officials completely ignored that fact. Instead, they advocated the turnover of the dam site to the Montana Power Company. Um, They did little or nothing to protect the tribe's interest, and it was a shameful process. That's Teresa Wall McDonald, who we've heard from before, speaking in an interview in place of the Falling Waters. Wall McDonald has served in a number of tribal capacities over the years, specializing in water issues. After their victory in the Senate, the tribes approached a Minneapolis engineer named Walter H. Wheeler and solicited an independent bid for the development of their power site. The proposal, Wheeler and the tribes agreed, and presented for permit approval by the FPC, was a good deal for the tribes. The Montana Power Company proposal would produce 68,000 horsepower at the site, most of which would be sent 140 miles away to Anaconda, offering no long-term development of the region and only $68,000 of rental fees each year. Wheeler's deal, on the other hand, guaranteed 214,000 horsepower and proposed to sell power at one-half of the price-controlled MPC switchboard rate and 58% below what MPC charged wholesale customers who were not amalgamated. Wheeler would pay a rental fee of 240000 280% more than MPC offered, and its cut price rates would provide genuine competition for the power monopoly, attracting businesses and industry to the region. The tribes had negotiated a deal that represented the first potential opportunity for the tribes to generate cash from a self-sufficient, homegrown industry since the reservation was opened and their open-range livestock industry was broken apart. Robert Gesner even called the Flathead Power Site the most valuable resource left in tribal hands after the Osage oil fields and Klamath timber stands in Oregon. And since Wheeler's proposal was negotiated with the tribes, neither party felt any need to include benefits for the federal government in the deal. So one thing Wheeler's proposition ended up crucially lacking was any plan to help pay off the government's substantial debt from the irrigation boondoggle. And so the Interior Department and the Federal Power Commission steadfastly refused to recognize the proposal as valid and denied the permit. A congressional memorandum on the issue, headed by Crampton, stated that the Wheeler Agreement has of course no standing in law and claimed, naturally, the Indians have never been in a position to analyze the actual earnings from their power sites. But Wheeler, Collier, 
and the tribes didn't give up and took their case to the Senate Committee on Indian Affairs, which held a series of hearings in St. Ignatius in October and November 1929. The hearings exposed the sweetheart deal the Montana Power Company had with Amalgamated, as well as the massive nationwide price-fixing of Ibasco. But far from killing the deal, the revelations only served to force the Montana Power Company to increase its offered rental fee to the tribes, and led them to proceed on what was called a spending orgy by Gessner, paying, quote, thousands of dollars to parsons, rabbis, and priests, to deaconesses' homes and to YMCAs, to commercial clubs and wool growers' associations, to individual Indians, Indian fixers, Indian picnics, and Indian powwows. The power company, now ran by a man named Frank Kerr, even went on to list the hundreds of items of bribery as reimbursable business expenses. Um, some of the elders talk about a powwow where Rocky Mountain Power or Montana Power officials came in and and gave everybody money at the powwow if they were to sign a petition supporting the licensing of the dam to them. And Mr. Kerr bought all the groceries for the Indians that were camping out. He was so generous and nice because he wanted to build that dam. He even handed out cash to the chiefs. I seen that and I knew that for the chiefs to take care of their people with while they were camping out. That's how much he wanted the dam to fall so he could build the dam. He was pretty loose with his money. Those testimonies were also from Place to the Falling Waters, Teresa Wall McDonald in there, and a Kootenai elder named Adeline Mathias. Eventually, in May 1930, a deal was agreed to issue the permit. The deal, which was plotted and engineered by the Bureau of Indian Affairs and the Montana Power Company, saw the license go not to the Montana Power Company, but to a dummy corporation formed for the explicit purpose of exploiting the Flathead Power Site called the Rocky Mountain Power Company. The contract required RMPC to sell the Flathead Power exclusively to its monopolistic owner, who then sold it to customers. The explicit purpose of this arrangement, which was first conceived and proposed in memos between the Commissioner and Assistant Commissioner of Indian Affairs, was to keep the sweetheart deal between the MPC and the Anaconda Company in place and shield the Montana Power Company, and therefore the American Light and Power Company and Ibasco, from government regulation that could force the breakup of their nationwide power monopoly and price-fixing scheme. Because if the Montana Power Company entered into a deal with the government, they would have to bring their company in line with government regulations. But if the deal was done with a subsidiary, only that subsidiary would be subject to regulations. As John Collier put it at the time, the government could regulate the licensee, the dummy. Government regulation could not reach beyond the licensee. The Montana Power Company would be made immune. Regulation would be nullified. Tribal members, after four years of fighting, walked away with $170,000 a year rental fee, but half of what Wheeler had offered, and considered themselves lucky to get anything at all. 
Frank Kerr and John D. Bryan wheeled a film crew out to the reservation for a ceremony where the chiefs Martin Charlo of the Salish and Custada of the Kootenai symbolically adopted Kerr into the tribe. The audio from that film clip is what you heard in the intro to this episode. It is a great pleasure for me to meet you and your people here today in your homeland at this place of falling water, where water has fallen idly for ages, the gift of our great creator. It has been decided that my people make this great development of your property, make use of this idle water for you, and all who may be able to use its power. If it shall fall upon me to carry on this work, I ask that you send your young man to help me, and that you come and set up your teepee, and visit us when you can, and watch the great work grow. I want to thank you and your people for all your kindness, and I hope the work will be a success, and bring to your people Many comforts as long as waterfalls. We played a little bit in the intro of Chief Custada of the Kootenai's speech as he adopts Frank Kerr. But I want to take time now to play his full remarks because I think they're worth hearing. <laughs> Kustada says, It is true what this man is saying. I know he has a big name in this country. Today, I give him an even bigger name. I know he has wealth. Today, I'm giving him even more wealth, this man. And I shall give him a name. His name shall be Light. Despite the bitter struggle over the power site lease, tribal leaders could be forgiven for feeling cautiously optimistic. The power company's agreement was still substantially lower than what they had agreed with Walter Wheeler, but it was an increase from the initial secret agreement and it had regularly scheduled payment increases built in. The power company had also promised to hire indigenous people at the site and develop the area around the site, theoretically bringing a sustained economic growth to the tribes. But once again, the stated and actual intent of this agreement were very different. We're going to take another break here, but when we come back, we'll talk about the construction of Kerr Dam and the long tail these events have throughout the 20th century and into the 21st. Land Grab is proud to be part of the Montana Mint Podcast Network. Be sure to check out the Montana Mint's other shows, which include Montana Murders, Notorious and Unsolved, which I hosted with author Brian D'Ambrosio. In that show, we dig into some of the most interesting murder mysteries in Montana history. They also have the Grizz Fan Podcast, the number one podcast this side of Montana, focused on all things Grizz football. The Montana Mint Sports Pod 
is a weekly show focused on all things Big Sky Conference. And the Montana Trivia Championship is a game show devoted entirely to our great state. You can get all of these shows on all of your major podcast apps, and you can check out the Montana Mint on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter for more. Construction began quickly. The Montana Power Company had to start getting power down to Anaconda as soon as possible. But from the beginning, they intentionally underdeveloped the site, working to produce just the power they needed to send to the smelter and maintain a minimum surplus to sell at their artificially high fixed market rate. The tribe's preferred bid would have used the whole site's power and created genuine competition for the monopoly. But the power company only used about 40% of the site's power and tightened their stranglehold. At the same time, the Great Depression was spreading devastation throughout the country. And the Montana Power Company cried poverty. They immediately became delinquent in their rental fee to the tribes and even defaulted on their lease with the government. From 1932 to 1936, while they were negotiating a new lease with the government, they refused to pay any rental fees. Many tribal members resented the dam, but still took work on the project to try and feed themselves and their families through the Great Depression. The hunger is um, a feeling that I hate to go through anymore that is forced hunger you probably heard of uh, the gnawing pains of hunger well that's how it feels it, it hurts I was so hungry and she was sick 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 she couldn't get up to cook so I got one of them coffee can like that and I put it on the stove with a little water and then it was boiling, so I just went and threw some flour in there. <laughs> I stirred up. It looked ugly. But gee, that was good. I put salt in. I started. Well, that helped. I was starving. We were so dang poor at home that... Uh, Whenever uh, my folks would hear that uh, uh, some farmer's uh, cow died, you know, within the radius of a mile or two or three, then my folks would go there and skin it, and they'd take that uh, stinking meat back home and uh, cure it, and it was uh, edible to some degree. But in my case, I would not ever eat it because I could still smell that uh, smelly meat. It was awful for me. Those are voices we've heard already in this episode, Larry Parker and Adeline Mathias, and I think their stories here give a clear idea of the dire straits people were in at this time. In 1934, allotment came to an end with the Indian Reorganization Act, or the Wheeler-Howard Act. The Wheeler was Burton K. Wheeler, a senator from Montana. The Reorganization Act on paper moved the government away from assimilation policy into what was called a self-governance policy. What did the Wheeler-Howard Act do? One, it 
recreated tribal government and tribal councils and gave considerable power to those tribal councils. It recreated tribal land ownership, the concept which predated the General Allotment Act. Lands were to be restored to the Indian people whenever and wherever possible. One of the principal things that the Indian Reorganization Act did is it stopped the Allotment Act process. So for land purposes, no more allotments after 1934. The other thing that it did was any, tri any lands within the boundaries of a reservation that were still in surplus status were to be reverted to tribal ownership. So as far as a land issue, the Indian Reorganization Act did something good. When that act had passed, I'd like to read you a little note here, a wire as a matter of fact, dated February 9th, 1935, which is addressed to C.H. McLeod, who was the general manager and part owner by this time of the Missoula Mercantile Company. Word had reached people in the Flathead that he was going to Washington for something, and the Flathead Settlers Association sent him this wire. <clears throat> Please investigate the possibility of sending someone along with you to investigate the terrible injury and injustice being done to 6,000 white people on the Flathead Project through government purchase of submarginal marginal grazing and irrigated lands, removing stock and lands from the tax rolls for the purpose of rehabilitating the Indians. This is endangering the welfare of all the whites on the reservation. Personally, see to it if you can while in Washington about securing justice for the white man on the reservation. Protest meetings of white settlers and businessmen are being held almost every day. That's an interesting view of justice. The tribes reorganized under the new self-governance law as the Confederated Salish and Kootenai becoming the very first tribe to do so after passing a constitution in October 1935 and accepting a charter in April 1936. Their first course of action was to send a representative to Washington to renegotiate the lease with the Montana Power Company, who had already defaulted on their lease and stopped paying the rental fees. Okay, did this new law work? Well, pretty much so. The problem with it was that the first Commissioner of Indian Affairs, who dates to 1934, was John Collier, C-O-L-L-I-E-R. Collier was one of the few people ever involved with the Indian people who did understand them and did understand their problems. But the Bureau of Indian Affairs began to burgeon like any bureaucracy, and the policies stated by Collier were mostly frustrated by the bureaucracy, by corruption, and by the typical misunderstanding again in the East of the problems of the people who lived in the West, most particularly the Indian people. By 1937, more than 800 workers were struggling to meet the construction timetable for the dam. Tribal members who worked on the dam were put to the most arduous and dangerous tasks, forced to work double shifts in unsafe conditions. This led to multiple on-site worker deaths, including seven indigenous workers who were killed in a rock slide in March 1937. 
One old man told me when he got back to his camp, he told his old lady, something's going to happen tonight because that rock is, is moving. When I last looked at it before I left, it moved about a foot. And that night, that's what it happened. And before I started working here, we lost Chief Matthijs' son, about 100, 100 yards from here. That's where he was working and got killed on the landslide. A couple of people got killed there, and a few others got caught in that slide. Once again, that voice is from the Kootenai elder Alec, left hand, speaking in place of the falling waters. On August 6th, 1938, the Missoulian reported on the dedication ceremony to hail the completion of the dam, saying a throng of Montanans were joined by hundreds of Indians in colorful dress at a natural amphitheater formed between rows of houses built for employees of the power company for a program of speeches, band music, ceremonial dances, and feasting. Among the speakers were Frank Kerr himself and Burton K. Wheeler, who had tacked his own political transformation to the dam issue, initially opposing it before switching sides to support the power company. The completion of the dam was celebrated as a monument to capitalism and free enterprise, and a significant moment that promised a brighter future for Western Montana after the devastation of two decades of depression. But the promise of the dam for the people of the Flathead region never really materialized under the Montana Power Company, who neglected developing the area even as they expanded the power site over the decades. The power company was focused on sending power to Anaconda, and the regional lift the dam was supposed to bring fizzled out. The 50-year lease agreement also stipulated regular increases in rental payments to the tribes, which the power company slow-walked and had to be forced into every time, usually through tribal litigation. For the rest of the 20th century and into the 21st, the CSKT were faced with rebuilding their land base and their sovereignty in the face of the termination policies of the Eisenhower administration and decades of continued underdevelopment. During the Eisenhower administration, there was another resurgence of bringing the Indian back into the mainstream of American life, of assimilating the Indian by a policy termed termination, that is, abolish the Indian reservations. There was a very, very, that was a very near, near thing. It almost succeeded. The Indian people, however, by this time were becoming activists, and if there's one thing that they relied upon, it was their land base. It was the last thing they had. The policy of termination stated by and pushed by the Eisenhower administration did not succeed, and it is my conviction that it will never come up again, because the Indian people are simply too strong now to permit it, and because there is too much opposition to it, even among Westerners. 
When you look back at everything that we've seen happen in land grabs so far, and you see the systematic, methodical, and ruthless breakup of everything the tribes had, swindled away by the government, white society, and most of all, big business, what's clear is that all of it was done for the most fundamentally American reason of all. Plain old greed. This is a story about rabid, consumptive capitalism that washed over the continent with the steady advance of white America. And nationally and locally, the American intent at each step of the way was the total destruction of indigenous people as a distinct type and the extermination of indigenousness in general. That indigenous people still exist in America today and hold on to what makes them distinct, still connect to their cultures, and still speak their languages, is a profound act of resistance, and evidence of the vehemence with which they and their ancestors have fought for their survival. And what is even more remarkable about this story is that over the century, after the debilitation of the events we've covered in the show, the Confederated Salish and Kootenai have not just survived, but have actually managed to rebuild and regain some of what they had lost. To talk us through this rebuilding, I'm going to turn things over to Dan Decker and Steve Lozar. There are other things, I guess, in terms of history and the politics that one could talk about, but in terms of the story, the 100-year story, recognize that the treaty was our title document. It said these lands would be ours forever. We opposed the Flathead Allotment Act, so we got our very special own act. Once the lands were allotted and surveyed, it was open to homesteading. Those lands were marketed out. They were settled. Over 400,000 acres of those lands were settled. And then allotments through mortgages, through being able to sell them, change their status from trust to fee, were sold to non-Indians. A lot of allotments went from tribal ownership to directly into non-Indian ownership through sale. So in that process, at the end of that period of time, less than a third of the reservation was in tribal and individual ownership. And um, so the tribes, as I said, uh, shortly after um, allotment, the tribes had uh, owned two of 10 acres on, on, our, on the area we reserved for ourselves. And almost all of those two acre pieces were the mountain ribs. We owned the mountains. All the prime land lost it. But, um, but one of the things we're doing about um, that issue of land here is um, over time, with our own money, with our own money, um, which everyone understands, we are slowly buying back our homeland. Today, over three-quarters of a million acres of land are held in tribal ownership. And it's an interesting fact that when I got out of law school and first started practicing law for the tribe, 
We didn't own 50% of the reservation. We owned like 43% of the reservation. So think about that in terms of how much land they bought in the 50s and the 60s to get back to this position. But while I was on the council a number of years ago, the thing I'm most proud of is we hit 70 or 70 percent or seven of every 10 acres we have brought back to the tribes at exorbitant prices um, prices that basically were set by um, by the non-indian more dominant society i'm not saying good or bad i'm saying that's just the reality that's that is so when you think about 1920s, that less than a third of the reservations in tribal ownership to today, or nearly two-thirds of the reservations in tribal ownership, I think that's a pretty good comeback. Quickly adding up the numbers provided to me, there are 760,000 plus acres that are owned by the tribe and individual members. Out of that, 90-some thousand acres are in fee status, and non-Indian ownership at this stage of the game is 406, roughly 416,000 acres. The state of Montana owns 41,000 acres on the reservation. The federal government, when you include the game preserves, the bison range, those things that are sometimes called federal camps with the irrigation project, is roughly 22,000 acres. And there are 76,000 acres of water body, probably largely of which Flathead Lake accounts for. I think what the tribe's mission statement is today certainly reflects the continued attitude for the past century, that the tribes will strive to regain ownership and control of all lands within our reservation and boundaries. And I think certainly in terms of adopting this mission statement of the tribe by the council was certainly a recognition of the realities out there. You know, when you think about it, yeah, it's possible that the tribe could buy all the land back. But what's the potential reality of that? Probably not. So it's possible, but not probable, I guess I would say. In terms of where we've been, where we're going, the tribe has regained most of the ownership of the land, but the environment's really been altered. We're dealing with the realities of that. We're dealing with the realities of how the world has changed all around us. The land ownership issue is there's values for open and unclaimed land. In terms of how the tribes have bought land, they have prioritized riparian properties. So when we go back to that map, and the green down the center, Flathead River. You look at a lot of the green throughout the valley, it will follow the streams because those lands have been prioritized. The other thing about it is, is a government here, different than some other tribal governments, has taken very seriously their obligation to govern their territory. But we've been buying it back, and one of the things we've done is a lot of it, we certainly understand the need for urban areas, for, um, for um, modern sewer and water systems. We, we understand all that. We're doing it ourselves. Um, we've worked in conjunction with, with the county, with the state on some projects. Some we've opposed each other, but that's okay if we sit down and talk about it. 
understand each other. That's so important. But um, we've turned a lot of this homeland back into its natural state. Um, we're renowned for that, actually. We have our own greenhouse that um, that we uh, that we grow um, uh, the traditional plants that were here, that were here in this area. We have fixed the streams. Um, we go in and mitigate the damage of, of the streams. Um, we've done a lot of that, and everybody gains from it. Everybody. Um, and, uh, and and to me, that's the key. Is what we've got here and what we collectively all have. Collectively means um, non-Indians and Indians. Um, the better managers are, we are, hopefully the better we'll, better we'll understand each other and, um, and live in a certain, uh, certain stage of balance. And, and I think m most people my age um, have that feeling. Sometimes powerful things have to happen to get to that point. Kerr Dam's 50-year lease ended in 1986, after which the tribes negotiated a joint operation agreement with the MPC that would see the CSKT eventually take over full control of the dam. And on September 5, 2015, the cameras were once again wheeled out to the reservation but this time for a very different dedication as the tribes celebrated the reclamation of the dam. We have many distinguished guests and friends with us today and family. Uh, allow me to introduce one of our distinguished guests. She came a long ways, Sophie Pierre. Thank you. Please allow me to say a few words, first of all, to thank you for this incredible honor. You're my relatives, my friends. We're tribal members, and I'm so very, very proud of what you have done. I'm so very, very proud of our, our grandparents, our great-grandparents, for what they have helped us to do. Chairman Vernon Finley. I'm uh, very honored to be standing before you today. Thursday morning, the EKI officials come in and said the money had transferred, so there was no turning back. And so we were, we were very, very proud. And, um, you know, 80 years ago, I believe that everything that I've always um, lived my life, that everything that is supposed to happen will happen. And more convincing of that was my great-grandfather, who was there negotiating the Kerr Dam in the beginning. 
مكتين لنا تتخارت مسكيت صار I believe he set this day, he set this day in motion on that day that you just saw in the video. Um, and I'm very humbled and very um, glad to uh, be descended from from him and his his foresight. They. They're the ones who put it in motion for us to be here in this position today. So, from 80 years ago to 30 years ago, those are the people that really did the work. And so, you know, they, we owe them everything that we have today, so. I promised that I would try to, um, heard this group of cats together into uh, uh, coming up with a name, a new name for the dam. And um, after all of the consideration and after all of the, the um, everything, all the debating, all of the going back and forth, and um, we decided to name it Vernon Finley Dam. No. Following in the tradition of Frank Kerr, <laughs> no, the, we decided to name it after the, the owners, the owners of the dam. So the new name for the dam is the Salish Kootenai Dam. The fight to regain control of reservation water and the irrigation project continued after that, and years of negotiations between the tribes, the state, and the federal government resulted in a $1.9 billion compact with the government to rebuild the irrigation system and transfer it to tribal control, along with the National Bison Range. This compact took effect this year, in 2022. After years of work and more than a decade of intense negotiations, water management of the Flathead Basin crosses a new milestone this week. Approval of the Flathead Water Compact, formerly known as the Confederated Salish and Kootenai Tribes Montana Compact last fall, marked the resolution of a question that first circulated nearly 30 years ago, namely water rights on the Flathead Reservation, and more specifically whether the federal government had lived up to the rights of the 1855 Hellgate Treaty. When negotiations began in earnest more than a decade ago, it was apparent there were lots of details to be addressed. Not only water rights and fisheries, but the management of water in the Flathead Basin and badly needed improvements to what is known as the Flathead Indian Irrigation Project. Those discussions brought tribal, state, and federal leaders together to iron out differences, but also sparked sharp concerns from Mission Valley residents, especially those with farms and ranches depending on irrigation. Finally, the state of Montana and CSKT leaders were able to reach agreement on a compact, but it took several more years and an additional push in Congress to get the federal agreement ratified. That happened last October, and since then, work has been underway to organize the actions to come in the decades ahead. 
Thursday marks a major milestone with the first meeting of the Flathead Water Management Board, the group that will oversee water administration in the years to come. The board's first meeting in Ronan drew a large crowd Thursday afternoon as tribal officials and Montana Lieutenant Governor Christian Juris announced the appointees to the new panel. They include Clayton Matt, former director of the CSKT Natural Resources Department, and Teresa Wall McDonald, who's filled a variety of roles for the tribe and has served on the tribal council. This is a landmark day for the tribes in the state, and I believe that with continued cooperation between the tribes in the state that we can work through any challenge that might present itself. And I listened to Earl Olperson one time. He was the uh, he was the chief of the Blackfeet tribe, and um, and uh, he was giving a talk in Kalispell, and I was there at this talk. And he said um, he said, you know, my father, my father um, said that we we have to fight battles, we have to fight battles as native people, um, but it's not the battles of his father's father with arrows and, and um, uh, arrows and clubs. It's not with guns. The battles we have to fight are with documents and papers. And Earl Olperson spoke so wisely when he said that. That's why we hold education so important. Um, we have our own hydrologists when it comes to water. Um, we have, uh, we operate our dam ourselves. Um, we have um, we have our own physicians. Um, that's why we're sitting in a room in Salish Kootenai College, is because we're educating our own. We educate them with with um, uh, an education that is uh, that is revered in the non-Indian world, and we educate them with an education revered revered in the Native world. We do all of those things ourselves. It comes from education, but it comes from how do we gird ourselves for those battles of papers and documents. We need to be smarter than the guy that is trying to take something that is inherently ours. And that's how we do it. That is going to be where we wrap up the story on the ground in the reservation for land grab. That is certainly not where the story of the Salish, Kootenai, and Ponderay ends, but it is where our narrative comes to a stop for now. But there are still some loose ends to tie up here, namely with our friends over at the Missoula Mercantile Company. Throughout the run of the show, we've seen the Merc grow from a humble country store into a behemoth in western Montana, the Missoula octopus, with tentacles in every business and industry in the county. And at the time I liquidated the Missoula Mercantile Company, this octopus, which was, a lot of people don't understand that it was that kind of an operation, liquidated the really the retail operation first and then the wholesale, got all done, and by 1967, thereabouts, had finally done everything. Sold the, the mills, the uh, grain elevators across the state that they owned, 
They own grain elevators? Oh, yeah. They own around, around Montana? Yes. They had grain elevators in uh, Hamilton, uh, St. Ignatius, Polson, and a big operation in Kalispell, which is all under what they call MISCO feed, M-I-S-K-O, MISCO feed. Then they had a big one in Bozeman. But there are still questions swirling about this operation. How did it continue to survive when other businesses its size crumbled in the decades of depression in the early 20th century? And where did all the money it was pulling in go? But uh, I always had the feeling that the, the Hammonds, we were, that we were all working for the Hammonds. <laughs> in the next and final chapter of Land Grab, we're going to answer these questions and unravel the gnarled-up tentacles of the Missoula octopus. Land Grab is written and produced by me, John Hooks, along with Matt Newman and Rory Murphy over at The Mint. Please make sure to subscribe to the show wherever you're listening so you don't miss an episode. If you like the show, please do rate and review us on whatever platform you're listening on. It really does get more eyes and ears on the show. You can also find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at LandGrabPod. A reminder that we are a donor-supported show. So if you would like to hear more, if you would like to know more about these things, if you want more LandGrab, please, please do consider making a contribution on the website.